Good morning. Well, good morning. There we go. I love uh, hearing the chatter uh, that occurs and the relationships. Um, you know, one of our, uh, it's not a motto, but one of the themes of our church is that God changes us through what? Does anybody remember? Vital relationships. Thank you. Uh, vital relationships. God changes us through vital relationships. So it's really uh, a blessing Sunday after Sunday to be able to get together and to see those vital relationships uh, flourishing as well. Uh, so welcome. What a beautiful day it is. And this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. Uh, this is a uh, special day for Alan and Pat Nichols as well. They're in the back. I think this is their 63rd wedding anniversary. Is that correct? You want to stand? Stand? There we go. Thank you. What a what are the blessing they are to us, and congratulations um, for 63 years married. That. Uh, that's a, that's a very long time, so that's really blessing. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements here. Uh, we have VBS that is starting tomorrow, uh, believe it or not. Woo uh, that was over there? You sure it wasn't here? It, it's usually here. <laughs> that's what it is. Um, but woohoo, yes. Uh, VBS is starting, uh, and I think they're handing out shirts, and uh, for all those that are involved, um, please uh, make sure that you get out there to the table and get your um, information, and uh, we'll be starting tomorrow night, so we look forward to that blessing. Uh, there's some announcements on your flyer. Please make sure you do that and grab that, and other than that, I'm going to open us in time of prayer here. I want to read just from a real really short psalm, extremely short psalm. It's actually only two verses long. Psalm 117 it says this, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all people, for great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Isn't that an amazing psalm? Let's pray. Uh, so, Father, we, we praise you and we thank you uh, for your kind grace and we thank you for your mercy. Oh, Lord, I thank you uh, for VBS. As we've shared before, Father, Vacation Bible School is a major place for so many of us. So many of us either came to faith in Christ during a VBS or were grown in our faith through that time. I thank you for the many volunteers that are going to be volunteering hours. They've already done so, and they will be doing so over this week. I pray that you would use them in amazing and strong ways, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray um, for those that would come here, children and maybe their families, who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would hear the good news of the gospel and be brought to faith in you. Lord, I pray for the number of ministries that are going to take a pause this week so that they can focus their attention on VBS. Thank you for those men's groups, those women's groups. Thank you for those ministries, Father. Thank you for the work that they're doing in lives, Father. Thank you for our youth program, and thank you for those young people that are growing in their faith and moving out in their faith, Lord. Lord, I pray for um, Tony right now. Uh, Fran's brother who is um, struggling. 
Uh, Lord, I think there's something coming up on the 23rd uh, for him. So, Lord, I pray uh, for wisdom uh, for the doctors. I pray for uh, next steps in this arduous journey. We pray as well for Diana Kelly. Father, we pray as well for Linda Matthews as they're battling. Um, Father, I pray that you would remind us uh, as well of the work that you're going to be doing in Dan's life, Dan Slack, Father, as he has his procedure coming up soon as well. Uh, Father, so many uh, physical battles that are going on, those that are known and those that are unknown. We thank you that you're a God of healing. We thank you that you're a God of grace. We thank you that you're a God of mercy. So finally today, Father, as we, as we begin this worship service, as we get an opportunity to be able to sing to you, hear your word open and preach to us, and then take part in the communion service, Lord, I pray that we'd be reminded of your son and magnify him for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
saw to the other side Knowing this was our salvation Jesus for our Savior thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come before you to gather Lord to learn more of you and Lord especially this morning Lord to just lift you up and to praise your name Lord we thank you for the gift of music we thank you for the inspiration by the Holy Spirit for those who can write such beautiful anthems as we just sang today Lord I just pray a blessing over those who are here today Lord um, Anyone who may not know you, this may be foreign, Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit, you would just speak to their hearts, open their minds to what you have for us all today, Lord. We give you praise. Amen. You may be seated. Today's Father's Day. So it is the day that we do uh, pause to reflect on fatherhood and what that means, and we... Uh, 
we've all had a father, and some have been really good and some haven't, but we have a heavenly father who is always good. So, believe it or not, Father's Day is not just an American institution. It kind of goes way back to maybe uh, Exodus. So we're instructed in the Ten Commandments to honor our father and our mother. So keep that in mind today as we do um, reflect on what honoring our fathers really is. This morning's uh, reading will be from 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of somber mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So good to uh, see each of you here this morning. I want you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the text that Dave just read for us. From 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to say also that I'm grateful to have my father-in-law, who is my dad by marriage, and my actual dad here uh, this morning. So that's, you don't usually get to 62 and have uh, all four parents. So it's the first time I've been at 62, but I think that's true. So how many of you remember the name Paul Harvey? Raise your hand if you remember the name Paul Harvey. Okay, so the way Paul Harvey's thing went was um, he would tell this story and then kind of leave you hanging. And I know I'm kind of guilty of Paul Harvey part A, okay? Sometimes I'll tell you guys stories and I never tell you what the outcome was, okay? And that's just kind of fun to do to you. No, just kidding. It's not intentional. My ADD kicks in. I can't remember why I told the story I just told. I get nervous and I just have to go to the next thing, okay? That's, that's, that's kind of what's happening. But Paul Harvey would introduce something, and then he would do an advertisement piece, which was the whole purpose for the show. And then he would come back and tell you the last part that you were like, oh my gosh, I, I would never have guessed that. And he would say, and now you know the rest of the story, Okay. So the text that we read, that Dave read for us this morning begins in a very similar way, right? It, it says, the end of all things is near, right? And so you have to say to yourself, because immediately most of us get in our mind a vision, right? Of a guy with long dreadlocks carrying a wooden pole, it's kind of strange clothing, And he's got a placard on it that says the end is near, and he's kind of walking around Times Square, right? That's kind of the, so Peter is either one of those guys where he's going a different direction here, okay? And so so what does that mean? So I was thinking as we were singing this morning, we sang some very powerful, contentful, deep truth about the work of Christ. Really, Advent crucifixion stuff, right? Not a lot of Easter stuff today, which is fine. But you need to know that when you're singing the Advent stuff, 
Actually, we did get to it, and in, in I'm just thinking through the words of the last song as I'm saying that. <laughs> so there is this tie out, but it wasn't as pronounced today, and that's, and that's fine, right? Because there are times we're focusing on what Christ has done for us. We're understanding how we get related to him, how our sin is forgiven, how we're set free. But then we get into our life and we go through seasons of struggle and suffering and difficulty. And that's what was happening to the early church. The one historian said this about the suffering and the persecution that was unleashed by Rome on the early church in this season. And he said, Rome dreamt up exquisite means of suffering for the people of God. Let that settle in, okay? If you're in the midst of that, and I mean, we, we get upset if somebody doesn't like us or disapproves of us. These people were paying a serious price. Some were shedding, even to the shedding of blood is the way the gospel says it. In the book of Hebrews, it says there were people suffering in, in ways that were far beyond comprehension to the point of death. And here's what the writer says, of them, the world was not worthy. So here's the question. How do you make it through your seasons of struggle? Your seasons of emotional struggle, your seasons of physical struggle, of relational struggle, and you feel like you're being torn apart because you're taking a stand for the gospel and sometimes that stand for truth will lead to friction. Sometimes it will lead to opposition. How do you work through that? Well, what you need to do is you need to remember that Christ has secured your relationship with his Father in heaven through the cross. But you also need to know that he made a promise to his disciples, and that is that one day I will come again so that where I am, you might be. I am going to make a place for you, a room for you in my Father's house. And in a sense, that's what Peter, Peter heard that from the lips of Jesus. So as someone who heard that firsthand, he now writes to the church in this region near Galatia and Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey today. He writes to that church, that group of churches, a general epistle, proclaiming the end is near. Okay, and the idea of it is not as much a date prediction type format as it is an understanding that the larger part of God's program has been completed and the next thing is the return of Christ according to the book of Revelation chapter 19. When he comes and emblazoned on his thigh are the words faithful and true, utterly reliable, a judge who cannot be bought who cannot be bribed, who cannot be enticed to render a verdict contrary to fact. That is Jesus Christ. And as, as Peter writes to this church and he, he sets up this discussion on what should be happening in our lives on a regular basis as the body of Christ, the first thing he says, the end of all things is near. And the question is this, okay, Peter, what do I do? If I live on the cusp of the next phase of the plan of God, which is the return of Christ, and a world in which there is a righteous judge, a benevolent, all-powerful dictator, which is, by the way, the best form of government, okay? You're not going to find it on this side. But one who loves you deeply and is capable of rendering a proper verdict and solving all of your struggles and problems, that is the King Jesus, 
And as Peter writes to these people in suffering, he's getting ready to call them to the daily expressions of what it is to be the body of Christ. He stops and he says to them, the end is near. You stand, he's right at the door. In the original language, this is in, it it simply means this. He has arrived at the door and is about to enter. And we are in that season of waiting without predicting dates, but knowing there are signs of the times. There are certain things that, that, that begin to reflect very clearly what's written in the book of Revelation. That should fill your heart with hope in the midst of your struggle today. Okay, and I, I just, I hope that that settles in for you. It's not about as much about timing as it is about the ultimate reality that is right at the door, and that is the coming of Christ that will change everything. It will be a game changer. And then we will know the rest of the story. Okay? You need to be clinging to that as you fight to be the man, the woman, the young person that God has designed for you to be. We live in a world where the prevailing worldview is live it up, do what feels good, whatever makes you happy, be true to yourself, follow your truth, follow your dreams, no absolutes. That's the world that I live in. There are certainly no obligations, no ultimate reckonings. Life is all about me, and that is the danger of all the trends that you see in the world that we live in today. This drive, this compulsion to be true to myself, to hell with everybody else, it's about me. And the only person I truly love is myself. And if you oppose me, I will hate you. That's the world that you and I live in. And Peter is writing to people that lived in a context like that. That is a dangerous world because the fool says in his heart, there are no absolutes, there is no God, there is no final day of reckoning But here Peter says the end is near. And it introduces the concept of a final reckoning that should change how you live today. I'm knocking the headphone off, Donnie, I'm sorry. Make this back one better. Build back better, okay. So the prevailing worldview, there is no God I live like I want. The prevailing Christian worldview is In contrast, there is a day of reckoning coming. There is an audit coming of our lives. We will stand before one who saw everything and who will bring justice. And Peter alludes to that in 1 Peter 4 and verse 5. Just look back up for context. He says, but remember those who oppose you, that they will have to face God. The idea is they will have to give an account to God who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And then immediately, two verses later, he says, oh, that day, the end, the final day of reckoning, that should change how you live today, is near. It's at the door. It's knocking. He is about to come. I I was thinking about this idea of no reckoning. Okay, just entertain this thought, okay, as if you were living in utopia, okay? There is no IRS, okay? Just let that settle in, okay? There is no IRS, but there still are percentages and rules and all those kinds of things, okay? How many of you want to live in a world where there's no IRS? And it, I, know your, I know your gut reaction is, yeah, hallelujah, I'm saying, think about, do you trust your neighbor? 
Do you trust the average business person to do the right thing if there are no consequences for doing the wrong thing? I'm going to be straight up. I don't. I'm going to be a little more honest. I barely trust myself if that was the case. You understand what I'm saying? We have a compulsion to want to live without reckoning. This text that calls the church to be the church does it in the context of knowing that there is a day of reckoning. There is a a, a final verdict that comes about. And and it's interesting, if you go back to chapter 1, just roll back there real quick to chapter 1, verse 6. Okay, just scroll back there real quick. And I want you to watch how Peter started this letter as now he begins to move towards the end of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 6. In all this, the suffering and struggles that they're going through and the hope of a future promise, the end of all things. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. So context helps me to understand at the door near ties in from this text as well, right? Even if now for a little while, because the end is near. Does that make sense? It it kind of sets context for the statement at the beginning of uh, our text today. He says, even though now you have had to suffer in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven value of your faith, the worth of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Do you see that? The end of all things is Jesus being revealed And in the meantime, I may have to go through seasons of struggle and difficulty as I wait for the day of reckoning, okay? And what does the day of reckoning do? The day of reckoning sets the record straight for all things, okay? So let's work through this text now, looking at how this ultimate reality, a day of reckoning is coming. How does that affect my daily life? Okay, and what what Peter's simply going to do, he's going to drift into four very simple, uh, very practical habits of Christian life that we should be cultivating while we're waiting, while we're experiencing at times in our lives opposition. Hopefully you're experiencing it for good reasons, not stupid reasons, foolish reasons. Okay, what do we do? And I want you to see what Peter says. First thing he says is this. Pray without ceasing. Verse seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And the idea of praying here is in this kind of an intensive present tense. It's a continual attitude that we have before God of need, of adoration, of of submitting requests, of praying for Dan Slack and praying for Dan and praying for Linda, praying for others that are going through seasons of struggling in your sphere of influence. It's this constant need to be tied to God in communication. It's about talking to God about your fears, about your suffering, about your needs, and it's about asking God to change you because that's the effect of a consistent prayer life. It will alter who you are when you talk to God. It will humble you, it will change you that the one who created the universe is in fact and indeed listening to you. And I think there's an implication here. All three of the four commands say to do whatever it is you're doing for one another. And I think the implication comes back in this text to the idea that this matter of prayer is also something that is to be bound up in our life together. 
okay? There's a, a Bible study group that I lead on Monday nights, okay? We spend a substantial amount of time in God's word, and then we break up for prayer time. We never talk about how long that's supposed to be. But here's what happens when people get together like that. When you do some soul bearing, when you start doing some transparency and you go around and say, okay, what's going on? How do we need to pray for you? It always starts out early in a group with pray for my aunt. Okay, because I don't have any issues. Does that sound familiar? It's the way we are. And it's only in the context of relationships that I am able to begin to bear the truth of my struggles. And in this text, I think Peter's call to constant prayer is not a call simply to a personal prayer life and habit. It is a call to prayer together. Because this context, this text, is overwhelmingly about life together. It's about what we share before our Father together. Go read through the book of Acts. You know what you'll find? They met and they ate, praise God, and they prayed. It is consistent throughout the book of Acts. I think it's on two occasions you will find an individual praying in isolation. The vast majority of the prayers recorded in the book of Acts are corporate prayers. It's about they were together, they met, they fellowshiped, and they prayed. I'm going to be direct. If you don't have context of relationships and relating in the body of Christ, there's no way you can fulfill this command. You can't. And that will have a certain impact on the depth and strength of your spiritual life. So I encourage you, I encourage you. I lived a long time without this. I will no longer live without this. Because here's what I find in our men's group, we don't talk about how long. Sometimes the prayer time exceeds the length of the time in the word. And that's not a problem in that setting. To me, there is a beauty to that. Seeing people gathered, bearing, soul-bearing times where we are, are learning about the needs that each other have. This is one of the practices that we need to cultivate in our life. Do you guys think that Peter, as he says this, pray, pray, that he's thinking of Gethsemane? What does Jesus say to Peter? Hey, Peter, the battle's on. This is game one. Pray. Peter, James, and John, a little community. The nascent church in seed form. Pray. What do they do? They fall asleep. And what do they do next? They fail. Jesus said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Pray together. Because it is critical to becoming the kind of person that God has designed you to be in community. Never in isolation always in a larger picture, a larger context. And I love the way he ends this verse. He says, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. The idea of sober mind is to be clear-minded. It's, 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 it's to be sane. That's the idea. Not so torn up by the struggles that you're going through that you can't get clear and good, reliable, trustworthy thinking. 
right? And so think of the demoniac of the gatherings. Here's the same kind of word is used. The man that was going nuts has an encounter with Jesus. And when the people from the city come out to see the result of the encounter, which they were informed about, what does it say? It says, as they walked out, they saw him sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Same idea here. Let's think about that. If I pray consistently, it will, and if I do it together, it will give me clarity. It will take me out of the crazy place that I tend to go to, and it will give clarity about life. Isn't that powerful? Pray so that you can be clear-minded, so that you can understand there are struggles and suffering around me, but the day is near. Prayer will remind you of that. Prayer together will allow you to remind each other of that truth. And that will change you. It is the ultimate reality that shapes us and changes us in understanding that the end is near. Pray then without ceasing so that you can stand. Secondly, verse 8 says this, above all, so what does that mean? Okay, this is pretty obvious. You don't need to know original languages to know this. Okay, above all, he says in verse 8, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, so above all simply means this. Love in the family of God is the priority that makes everything else right. Okay, and you have to start to get into a biblical understanding of love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Love is all about the opposite of the culture. Love is not about self-realization. Or as one individual on a a TV show recently said, you need to love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you're going to be a failure. That did not come from the lips of Jesus. Okay, that came from Genesis 3. Did God really say? You need to ignore God and love yourself. And every pattern in our culture that is about self-love always leads to a denigration of the culture. It tears people down. You were not made to love yourself. You were made to love God and to love others. And until that is a passion of our hearts worked out in the most concrete and practical ways, it will not change us. And so Peter says, above all, love one another he will, in John chapter 13, he will say, by this they will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. The implication is clear. If you don't love people passionately, you need to ask yourself, do I know God's love through the person of Christ? Has it ever changed me? If I can know there are needs and stay absorbed in my personal world, my individual world, and not care about others, you gotta ask yourself a serious question. How far away from God's ethic from God's house rules, have I drifted? In raising uh, three daughters, people would say to me when, we, when they were young, hey, how's it going with three girls? That's so fine, it's fine. They're actually four, right? They have a young mother, okay. Fine, oh, when they beca- wait till they become teenagers. It was always so encouraging, right? I was like, thanks. 
man, my simple rule of thumb was this. You can't criticize each other and you can't touch each other. <laughs> I said, you guys can burp. You can do all those other things that Pastor Tim won't mention in a sermon, but you cannot yell at each other. And I will never tolerate you touching each other. Why did I do that? Because I know from my understanding of scripture and from my own evil heart, if you give Satan a base of operation in your life, he will tear you apart. He will shred your life. Last week I was with the Raiders' grandchildren. So if you guys don't know this, the God that read this morning, Dave and Laura and Ruth and I share a grandchildren. I was with the Raiders' grandchildren last week. And uh, we're sitting there at a table eating with my daughter. James is off to work. And there's a sliding board. It's about a like four and a half foot, five foot high sliding board. And uh, there's Micah too. Okay. The two-year-old is on top of the sliding board. The six-year-old, soon to be seven, is up on the third step. Mom says, don't push him. She anticipated an occurrence of sin in the Raiders' grandchildren. Okay? Said it again. Because she was getting a little nervous. She's holding her four-month-old. And the other two are running around. There's four. So sin is abundant. (laughs) And all of a sudden, boom. My daughter looked at me. I looked at her. They're not my kids. (laughs) My daughter was a little upset with her daughter with our granddaughter. And I, I said, Ava, you can go up to your bedroom. She didn't need much correction. I mean, this kid went flying. First order of concern is he hurt. He was fine, he was crying like crazy. About half an hour later, I said to Becky, you want me to deal with this? I'll go, I'll go up and talk to Ava. So I went up and I sat on her bed and I said, uh, that was pretty ugly. I said, why did you do that? He was in my way. It's pretty honest. (laughs) Did she do it because she hates her brother? Yes or no? No. She didn't do it because she hates her brother. She did it because she loves herself. That's why she did it. He was in my way. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. When you live in a world where my way, my truth, my person becomes more important than everybody around you, you will become a destructive influence in the hand of the evil one. You be careful. So we said to our kids, not tolerated in this house. And I I didn't throw hard on much. I mean, there were a lot of things our kids did that you would be very upset with probably. You would find inappropriate or whatever. I don't care. I just care that they love each other. Because the text says it covers a multitude of sin. What does that presume? If love covers a multitude of sin, what is assumed? There's a multitude of sin. Okay, so what happened with my granddaughter shouldn't be like, oh, this is the end of the world. She's going to turn out a criminal. No, love covers a multitude of sin. Do you understand? Just let that settle in. 
Because if you let that stuff go on and you never call people to love, those abrasions received in the context of life will grow and ruin everything around you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your relationship with your kids because you will hate them. No, I could never hate my kids. Oh, yes, you could. Don't be so quick to think that you are beyond it. If you harbor and nurse, you understand why 1 Corinthians 13 says what it says? Love does not harbor grudges. It refuses to hold on to injuries and wounds and to make people pay. It turns to the ugliest thing. What's Peter's concern? Love each other above everything else. The first thing, the first order, love each other. That means put people before you. Philippians 2 makes it very clear. What is the mind of Christ? To love. How do I do that? Esteem others is better than yourself. Holy cow. And if I don't, a process of degradation will take place in my life that will dismantle my soul and leave me in ruin. So I, I, I warn you, church, that when Peter says love, love others above yourself, he knows from his personal experience, his own fallenness with the Savior, how much he preferred himself. And at the end of his life, after the resurrection, Jesus calls him seaside and says, Peter, do you love me? I know you love yourself. Very clear, abundantly clear. My grandkids, they love themselves. They love to talk about themselves. But they're little, so it's okay. But if they're doing that when they're 18, I'm going to be scared. They will permanently be the Raiders' grandchildren. Okay? <laughs> Show genuine love. Why? Does it, why? Because hurt is inevitable. Love covers a multitude of sin because a multitude of sin is what's present in my life. If you relate to me, I tell people all the time, I promise you, I will disappoint you. And I'm going to need a love I don't deserve. And that's what I find in Jesus. It's what we find in Jesus and it's what teaches us. By this we know love, right? He laid down his life for us and we ought to. 1 John 3, 16. Lay down our lives for each other. Man, I am so into embracing my own life and loving me. God help us. God help us. And let me just say that that kind of love is not naturally occurring. What my daughter did on the sliding board last week. You guys know the principle of sowing and reaping? You know that? About 59 years ago, when I was four, I don't know if my parents remember this, we were atop an eight-foot sliding board. My sister was in front of me, me being the key word. All right, my model in life is you can go first after me, okay? And I shoved her. She didn't go down the sliding board. She went to the side of it, head first in the stones, gravel in her face, because I was thinking about me. So when I was in the process of talking to my granddaughter, I told her that story. Because I wanted to know there's hope. That God can change you. And Galatians 5 tells me that 
love is the fruit of the spirit, which means that the love that God calls me to is not naturally occurring love. It's supernatural love. So parents, when you're correcting your kids and you're telling them, you need to love somebody, (laughs) make sure you let them know that you don't, as you should. And give them hope in the gospel. That first, there is forgiveness when I hate. And secondly, that there is a spirit of God who will come into your life so powerfully that he will radically transform you and change you to look more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Isn't that a beautiful hope? So pray and love. Verse 9 says this, and this I think is simply an outworking or illustration of the love that God calls us to. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hesitation there is on purpose, not ADD, okay? Offer hospitality to one another without complaint. Okay, let me just, I'll, I'll tell you, the ancient world setting was this. Travel was dangerous. You know, according to the commercial, they did not leave the light on for you. And if there was a light on, it was probably a sign that that house was a house of ill repute. So a traveler in the ancient world would be often a stranger in need. That simple. And the call of God to his people was to offer hospitality in that kind of macro sense. Okay, that's the original meaning. Okay, when somebody's traveling through town, do not let them at risk. Inconvenience yourself for their care. Okay, that's the gospel paradigm. Jesus inconvenienced himself for my repair. And that's the call. Show hospitality. Take in. Care for Jesus did this consistently throughout his life in a slightly different nuance. Do you remember why they accused Jesus of being so bad, the reason they had to put him to death? What did he do? The disciples stood outside as he ate with Zacchaeus. And what was the charge? He eats with sinners. I said, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. In the ancient world, if you invited someone to your house to sit at your table, you were affirming and loving them. And the Pharisees had no love for sinners of renown. They, they violated the first one, surely. The second was a no-brainer as a result. If you don't love people that don't deserve it, you will not be a lover of people because nobody deserves it. And in this text, we're being called to the kind of thing that Jesus did, table fellowship, have people in your space and care for them and serve them and share your resources with them. We live in a sad age because I think the average parent is concerned about looking like a good parent, even if they're not obsessed with how do I look. You know what I want? I want want a reputation as being an awesome dad. I'm that sinful. 
It is addictive and evil. We, we are obsessed with me and mine and have little time for them and theirs. And I don't know how we get that to jive with the gospel that we proclaim and that we sang so beautifully this morning. I don't know how we do it, but we do. We live in virtual isolation, consumed with our own busyness, consumed with me and mine. And we get back to individualism kind of in this small corporate setting of my home where I want to look like a good parent. I challenge you. I think there's a reason that the New Testament says in 1 Timothy 1 or chapter 3, Paul says to leaders, be prone to hospitality because you're an example to the church. And to the church, be hospitable to one another. Be open-handed Think for once about them and theirs as you pour yourself into me and mine. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. It won't make you a less sufficient parent when you start caring about other people. It will make you a better parent because you're showing your kids what Jesus is like. Does that make sense? I'm telling you, we, we complain about the individualism of the culture that leads to sins that we don't like but the greed that we justify in the context of my house and my stuff is screaming. It's screaming. And may God help us to break out of our tendency to selfishness. And it's interesting that he says, show hospitality without complaining. My wife has the gift of hospitality beyond just being hospitable. Uh, I could say to her after church, hey, can we have so-and-so over? Her answer will almost always be yes. You know why? She loves people. I'll venture to say something. I should not say this kind of thing. Don't tell my wife I said this. Because it's Father's Day, not Mother's Day. Okay? I think you guys have a great example on my wife. Let me say it that way. I tell the kids at youth group, if she's smiling, she's mad. Because she's always smiling. Had 20 kids at the house on a Monday night. She could not have been happier. I tell her, these are pre-people. They aren't even full-blown people yet. And you love them. (laughs) And she does. Passionately. Prays for them. Passionately. Is devoted to others. Passionately. You've been teaching junior church because she loves your kids for 35 years without complaint. I said, honey, you need to like, take a break. I needed to take a break. <laughs> when are you going to take a break so I don't feel so bad about taking mine? <laughs> you ever burned out, honey? <laughs> she loves people so much. And I hope that that example of her life can rub off on us. I tell people when they come to my house, everybody brings me joy. Someone they come, and someone they go, okay? When you practice hospitality, there will be times when people overstay their welcome. I have a running joke with a close friend. 
He says, well, when people stay too long, I just start taking out the trash. I said, that's funny. I go to the bathroom like three times in a row. And if that fails, I call my wife on the phone from the bathroom. <laughs> what does Peter say? Practice hospitality without complaint, without murmuring. I, I'm going to tell you, I, I can struggle in that regard. We're pretty hospitable. Sometimes you're like, they obviously do not have a watch and their phone battery is dead. <laughs> Something like that. Now, I'm going to tell you this. At the last baptism service, without trying to identify a person, uh, there was someone that we would have over. Just Honestly, just showing hospitality, just straight up. Let them know that we care. Let them know Jesus cares. I don't know how much of a part that had in what God did, but I believe it had a part. So my wife, can we have so-and-so over again? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And to see her gift of hospitality yield fruit that lasts forever. Because when I serve a meal, they're going to be back the next day. They're going to be hungry. But when their life changes, glory to God. And that is... That's the benefit of saying, I need to saturate my life with others. So can I ask you a simple question? When's the last time somebody sat at your table like Jesus? And you ministered to them. Maybe someone outside of church that's fine. I'm just, there's an assumption that this is, every one of these commands is love one another. Practice hospitality to one another. Okay, it's the repeated theme of the New Testament relationally. I just trust that God will bring you a sense of conviction. I pray that you will ask yourself, when is the last time I took care of them and theirs? I, I'm going to tell you, I do fine with me and mine. I have no problem, no problem with me and mine. But them and theirs can be hard at times. But it is hospitality. Taking care of your family, folks, is not hospitality. It means loving strangers. And the stranger they are, the harder it is. Okay? All right, let's look at verse 10. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Now, let's just, just stop. The assumption of the text is that every Christian has received by sovereign design a gift from God. And a gift in the New Testament simply means this, a spirit-born capacity to make a difference in somebody else's life. Again, the individualism is, is condemned to receive a gift so I look better. That's the sin of Corinth. It's about me. No, it's not. It's about God. And he has gifted you to make a difference in someone else's life in some way so that he will be glorified. Not so you look good, you did a good thing. Applaud you. No. No. Not so I can look in the mirror and say, hey, you did a good thing today, Tim. Good. No. That's my sinful response. 
given by God, divine arrangement. The word is in various forms. It's variegated, it's kaleidoscope. The beauty of a church emerges as a variety of people do their thing that God has called them to do. That will happen this week through a Vacation Bible School. Happens here every Sunday morning. Don Wagner holds things together. I frustrate him like crazy because I'm not well-planned. Right, Donnie, amen? Okay, all right. That's just the way I am. We need people like Don and people like Lisa and Mark and people that are at the doors and greeting people and loving on people and sharing their lives, watching kids in nursery so you get a break from your kids, okay? It's, it's, there's this variegation that makes up beauty. And God has given his grace in all its various forms, in all the substantial ways that helps us to be better together. Because a successful, isolated Christian is an abomination. It is danger when you succeed alone. And this text does not allow you to live alone. It demands that you take God-given resources and that you steward them is the idea. You administer them, you, you, you find out how they work to benefit others in a way that glorifies God. That's the thrust here. If you speak, take it seriously. If you're in this spot or you're in a classroom, you're my wife teaching kids, dead serious. We're talking about lives, about souls, about marriages, about parent-child relationships about your relationship with people out there in the world. What's said from here matters. And we're given one command between Doug James and I from 1 Timothy 4, preach the word without fail and without apology. And watch what God will do. That's what God's called me to do and Doug and James. Along with the other, because we're all given, I believe, this variety of things. We're not single dimensional. God suited you to meet a whole lot of meats. And when you serve, do it as the Spirit enables. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you're serving other people in your own strength, you will feel burnout very quick. You will find it exhausting to deal with difficult people. But if God is in it, one of, I think one of the best ways to know whether it's a gift from God or I'm off base is does what I'm doing energize me? Not, I'm not saying it's never draining. But is there something about it that is the reason to the glory of God that I live? It gets me out of bed. It causes me to reach out to someone and say, there's a need. I need to go meet it. And God help us. Verse 11 ends by saying this, so that, serving the strength that God provides, so that, here is the aim of everything we do. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ who changed your heart and through the spirit who enabled you to serve others. May God be praised through Christ to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Peter gets done talking about the church, household rules, and he's like, this is awesome. Because he understands. You can look at every one of these things and see that Peter lived the opposite. And then the light went on. And he got it. And it changed his life. So here are my two concluding thoughts. And these are stolen from somebody, okay? 
I, I, don't, I can't remember who, but they're stolen. It just came back to my mind as I was finishing. We are needy and needed. We are needy and needed. Carmelo changed how I come to church on Sunday morning a couple of years back when he said, uh, we as Christians don't come to church because we have it together. We come to get it together. Folks, if you're a broken person with pronounced weaknesses, you're amongst friends. And there is hope for you like there is for us. We come needy and needed. If you are simply a shopper, you're not the person God's called you to be. If you simply come like you go to the grocery store, to the house of God, and you make it about you, if I liked it, if I enjoyed it, if I, Josh, if I wasn't bored, if you were here for baptism, okay? It's all about me, right? And I know Josh, I love Josh. Josh, I love you. I meant no harm, but for a good illustration, it worked. (laughs) And don't forget, so don't worry about it. If I come just as a shopper, and I just take, 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 you're going to accuse me of being one of your children, right? Does that bother you with your kids as they're growing up? It's like, man, you guys are so selfish. And then that would be this bright light where they do something good, and you're like... We have to applaud that for like five minutes so they remember that that's the right thing, right? They're just, they're like us. And if all you do is come to get, you don't understand what this is about. You come needy, but you also come needed. Meaning there's a spot for you to fill in someone's life. And when you're not here, there's a need that goes unmet. And there's a gift that God gave you that goes unused. And one day you will stand before him and give an account for that. He did not gift you to sit to the side. He gifted you by divine design to make a difference in my life. Okay, there are people in this church, I hope you guys understand this. A lot of times people go, well, yeah, but you're, no, I'm not. It ain't all pretty. Okay? Talk to my wife. How is it living with Tim? You can ask her. It ain't all pretty. Trust me. And by God's grace, occasionally I have a a good day. And it's humbling. I'm very needy. But my wife needs me as well in the context of our marriage. And in the context of church life, if I sit to the side, I never open the door of my house, I never have someone sit at my table, I am wasting the gift that God has given me. May God help us. And the second point, we are needy and needed. The second point is this, I cannot walk in obedience to God in isolation. Okay, let me say it again. I cannot walk in obedience to God in isolation. Do I need to explain that? I hope not. Many of us live isolated wives. We may be good mates, maybe good parents. That's not what this text is calling you to. This text casts a grander vision 
of the body of Christ sustained in suffering because they care about each other. And that is the divine, sovereign design of God for your life. And when you adopt it, it's going to change your life. Let's pray because I'm out of time. I'm over time. Lord, help us. Help us. Because there is something in each of us that resists a life lived for others. And only by the fruit of your spirit can we find unleashed in our heart a love that perseveres. And only in the work of Christ can I see the love that I should be pouring out on others. So this morning, Lord, help us to ask ourselves the question, when is the last time? Am I using the gift that God has given me to build the body of Christ? God, help us not simply to hear, but to respond and do something different, even this week. Invite a friend over for prayer. Invite a friend over for dinner. Take my resources and unleash them for the glory of God so that in, Lord, all things, you will be glorified. Now, Lord Jesus, as we bow before you right now and in front of us is this table that we do on a monthly basis, a small meal signifying a much larger benefit that we receive from you through simple symbols of your broken body and of your shed blood, changing our eternal destiny and changing our daily existence. May we today, God, come with deep gratitude for what your son accomplished for us. May we come today realizing that when we partake of this element, we are preaching, we are proclaiming, till you come, Lord Jesus, the end is near. And as we partake, we proclaim our hope in you for forgiveness and freedom. Father, I pray that no one will partake of this cup this morning for whom this is not true for whom this has not transformed them. God, don't let people think that a religious act can change eternal destiny, can improve my relationship with you. God, protect us from that this morning, that we would not ritually partake, but genuinely. Remembering, Lord, that you invited us for your work at the cross to this table. Help us, help us, Lord that as we partake, we would proclaim in our hearts, maybe even verbally, thank you, Lord. Thank you for changing my life, for forgiving me, for making me a husband that I could never be, to be a dad that I could never be, to be a brother or sister in a church body that I could never be, apart from your favor. So Lord, help us to reflect as the elements are passed out by the men. And then as we share in a song together with the elements in hand, singing your praises and then partaking and proclaiming. To God be all the glory. And all God's people said, amen.
Isn't it wonderful when you think about what he's done for us? Thank you, God. Thank you, Christ. I want to read the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 as we come to take communion together today. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Just before we take the bread, I was thinking about this this morning. Why does he say in the night in which he was betrayed? Was that, is that just like a time slot? You know, it just happened to be on the same day he was betrayed. We well, go back and read the Gospels, and it's very, very clear 
Here is Jesus who is pouring out his life for the world in the midst of a world that is against him. And one who is close to him betrays him. And none of that keeps Christ from accomplishing his purposes, does it? He is the lover of our soul. No question about it. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That covenant which was promised from of old and people had waited for hundreds of years has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And he ends by saying this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the promises in the Gospels is Jesus says, I'm coming, and I will eat again with you in person. But until then, you keep proclaiming my death. You keep reflecting on my death. And you watch how I change your life. I'm going to ask um, before the final prayer, if all of those who are going to be involved in Vacation Bible School could just stand up for us at this point. If you don't mind standing, all of those that are going to be involved in Vacation Bible School, I want to pray for you, in particular, and pray for this week. And one other appeal, uh, tomorrow between 12 and 2, if you have the gift of decorating, we've got a job for you. Okay, so I hope you'll come, and Sherry would love to get your help between 12 and 2 tomorrow if you're able to do that. But let, let's pray, and I want to pray especially for these workers and, and all that they're going to be doing for us this week. Father, we rejoice in the wonder of the cross, the wonder that Jesus Christ is resurrected, the wonder that he's our great high priest who intercedes for us, the wonder that he's coming back for us one day. Lord, will you overwhelm us afresh with the wonder of Jesus Christ. And Father, as my brothers and sisters go forth to minister this week in Vacation Bible School, a lot of them will be coming from work when it's prob it'll probably be a hard day of work for some. Will you energize them in such a way that there's no other explanation but that you are at work? Will you allow them to see that, that this is all about what you're doing in the lives of people for eternity, and they get to participate? So, Father, keep our focus on the eternal. Help us to find our strength from you. 
And Lord, help us to speak and do things by your power, for your glory, and for the good of these children. Lord, for each one of us, whether we're involved in Vacation Bible School or not, we are called to be people of prayer. We are called to be people who love passionately by reaching out to the other and by ministering our gifts for you. So, Father, do that good work through your Spirit in each one of our lives. We need you, Lord. We are, as Tim said, both needy people, but people also that get to be used by you to reach out to others. We're needed. And Father, for that, we rejoice. Lord, may we go forth in your strength, by your wisdom, whether it's to a Father's Day celebration or to a quiet apartment by ourselves, you are there. And may we go forth in your power for your glory because of Christ. In his name I pray, amen.